All right, two things to get out of the way first. Uh, Christy said that she wasn't going to kiss me anymore with a beard. So I ripped it out of my face when she said that, and then we kissed, and it, it hurt at first, but then we kissed, and it was better. And um, then she said that she thought my mouth got smaller over the period of time that I had a beard. And I said, well, you just guaranteed I'm going to grow it right back. Pretty funny. She wants it one way, and then she doesn't want it that way. So she's a woman. <laughs> and she's not here today. It's, it's genius. Genius. Uh, second thing. Uh, man, the church is gathered this morning, right? Wow, I just have goosebumps. Um, this last season of a couple months now where we've been split up into two services, not ideal. It's not ideal. It's a necessary thing because we have firewalkers that are going to be walking around, deacons that are going to be walking around as we spend these next few minutes this morning. This was a uh, holiday weekend, so we didn't anticipate this number of people here. And I think it, it, it's the donuts, right? <laughs> I mean, y'all can be honest. We're in church. You're supposed to be honest. It's the donuts that got you here. Um, whatever the case, this is ideal. This is the people of God gathered, and this is what we believe that God has in mind for us. Um, one of the things that uh, I think we have in store while I'm on sabbatical is Brad and Scott, Scott primarily, but I think Brad may be preaching some as well, uh, on a series on congregational authority. We're studying that right now. One of the things that's come to light is the realization that the banner that flies over a congregation, that identifies a congregation, is the preaching of the word and the ordinances. So in some ways, these last couple of months, we've been like two churches. It's not ideal, and it's not something that's going to be a long-term thing, whether it means uh, a larger building, another property, uh, whether it means a church plant, whatever it means, this is ideal where the people of God are gathered. We take the supper together. We experience God together in one seating together, in one sitting together. But in the meantime, in the meantime, while we work through this sort of necessary season that we're in, let me encourage you in this. Stay the course. Enjoy these times where we intentionally say we're going to gather in one service. We may have to do this in a different location next time we do this. Um, hang on to those times. Enjoy those times. Um, let me encourage you in this as well. If you come to the first service and there's no reason that you can't come to the second service other than just preference, you like to maybe have a, kind of have your morning finished or something like that on a Sunday morning, I get that. There's totally nothing wrong with that. It's not condemning you at all if that's kind of where you've landed. Let me encourage you and challenge you in this. If you're able and mobile, if you can come to the second service, that would help us with the second service. The second service is what we believe to be sort of our front row, or excuse me, our front door service. When someone's visiting a church, they're likely going to come and visit the church around that holy hour of 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. It's the holy hour. I mean, that's when people gather. And so that's when we anticipated that that would be the time that our folks would visit Crosspoint for the first time. Now, then that's beautiful, but the, uh, ideally we have more of our congregation in that service than not. The way it's sort of landed is we have about two-thirds to sometimes, that's probably more like two-thirds, two-thirds of our, our congregation in the first service. So it kind of makes for an environment in that second service where I'm looking at visitors' faces and I'm thinking, man, I wish you could experience God's people together. I wish you didn't miss this morning a large portion of our congregation. So I want to encourage you, if you're mobile, I, Aaron Sherman said it so well. He said, you know what? We would really like to be in that first service, but we're in the second service as a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice, but a meaningful sacrifice, because we want to be in that hour to welcome folks who gather, us for the, gather with us for the first time. So that's an encouragement. If you stay in the first service, uh, you're not going to be browbeaten. Nobody's going to condemn you. But if you have that ability to mobilize, please see it as a missional decision. You have the chance to connect to folks that may be not part of a local church that may be visiting for the first time in that second hour. Okay. All right, business uh, housekeeping stuff aside, let's pray. God, we want to uh, pray for a few things this morning um, before we pray about how we spend these next few minutes. We want to pray for our country, Lord, as we are uh, basically in a holiday weekend celebrating the 4th this week. Lord, we want to just lift up our country and pray that I pray a very specific uh, surgical prayer that in this season with a, a justice retiring that your... Um, that it would be clear that your hand was involved in the timing 
and your hand was involved in the selection. And Lord, I will confess and share openly and um, clearly uh, in, in hopes that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. Lord, that is, that is a burden for me. I, I suspect that it's a burden for a large portion of our church. Lord, we value the unborn and we beg for their opportunity to, to, first of all, take breath and then second of all, to give that breath to you and to spend their lives worshiping you. And Lord, we beg for um, some circumstances to unfold to where that decision would be overturned. And um, we're entrusting huge prayer to you. That's a huge ask. But we acknowledge that we have a huge God that is hearing a prayer uh, from Greenville, Texas this morning and can act on that. We ask you for your namesake and for your glory uh, to move in that way. Lord, also this morning we want to pray for our plant churches. I'm going to pray for our, our church in commerce and our church in Rockwall. Lord, we want to lift them up and ask you to bless them. Lord, I pray that you would bless their journey together, that you would bless their leadership in both churches, Lord, that they are enjoying you, that they are fueled by worship, that they are moving well. Uh, Lord, just uh, ask you to, for your kingdom to be advanced, for the people of God to be equipped, uh, for the, the churches in commerce and the churches in Rockwall, uh, and especially those that, that we're connected to. Um, Lord, that you would be, uh, that they would be salty, bright, and aromatic, that they would... Uh, Carry the gospel where they go uh, in between Sundays because they're well-equipped. Um, Lord, lastly this morning, I want to pray for our youth. Uh, just thankful for this, this time that our youth had this last week to get away and to enjoy you together as a, a bunch of uh, young people. Lord, we entrust them to you. We entrust um, the, the seeds that were sown, the words that they heard, the word that they studied, the fellowship that they experienced together, Lord, that they would... Um, that you would use that to really uh, create in some ways an Ebenezer, that they can look back on this last week and see it as a time where you really did something special in their lives. We are entrusting them to you, Lord. And lastly, I wanted to ask for this time that we spend together that you would be um, your character, your identity, uh, who you are as a person would be enjoyed, would be uh, exposed uh, and then enjoyed. Uh, entrusting this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn to the book of Job. We're in chapter 25 primarily this morning. And let me encourage parents. It's a good time to encourage parents. Um, we can handle some distractions. Just do your best. It's okay. Uh, we know that we have little ones in here with us. Little ones, y'all do your best uh, to pay attention and not be a distraction for your mom and dad. It's important that they hear these words. And you'll be able to hear some of these things as well. Um, I trust that the Holy Spirit um, can communicate with you and help you in these next few minutes as well. So just do your best and don't fret um, if, uh, if, if have a distraction here and there. We can handle that. Over the years in, in ministry, I've noticed the number of times that uh, I've had the thought that the kind of father and the kind of parents that someone has or had influenced their view on God. I did a little research uh, this week and found um, uh, a journalist. Her name was Ash. Her name is Ashley Merriman. She's a journalist and author, and she runs a faith-based ministry for inner-city children in L.A. She writes on this, and I haven't read her book or anything like that. I'm not putting her out there as somebody you need to go read. But some of what she shares is thought-provoking. So I'll share just a few excerpts of an article that she wrote. When parents are more supportive of a child's autonomy, giving her a sense that she is in control of her own life, a child is more likely to see God as a more forgiving God. God is an authority figure to be respected, but he is less fearsome. On the other hand, if parents are extremely strict and punishing, dictating every moment of a child's life, their children are more likely to believe that God is punishing, angry, and powerful. Girls are more affected by this dynamic than boys. And the way mom disciplines has more of an effect in this direction than the way dad does. Interesting, interesting stuff. And for children who have an extremely strained relationship with their parents, or when a parent is absent from their lives, scholars have found that children in those relationships increasingly think of God as a surrogate parent. That's appropriate. I, I think that's kind of fitting. God is the ultimate father figure. They endow God with the traits of an idealized version of the missing parent, someone who is caring, attentive, and highly involved in their day-to-day -day lives. He's an understanding, patient confidant, always there to offer encouragement 
and support. That's sort of a sanitary version of, I think, what I've seen folks do that maybe had a parent or a couple parents that weren't ideal where they just ran headlong to a good and loving God and embraced him as their surrogate father. Just a few more thoughts here. It would follow then, this is interesting, at the age that a child's relationship with his parents becomes most turbulent, I can kind of guess what that age might be for those of us who have children in that, that, that uh, age, uh, so does his relationship with God. In a recent study by Clark University professor uh, Lynn uh, Arnett Jensen, conservative Protestant adolescents had some very mixed things to say about God. Conservative uh, adolescents, Protestant adolescents. The God of adolescence is judgmental, disapproving, and unforgiving. He isn't very loving. His supernatural gifts are akin to those of the devil. <laughs> On the whole, adolescents seem more negative, almost hostile to God than at any other time in their lives. And there's a little excerpt in there that said, sounds to me like their God is a cross between a parent, a popular mean girl, and a college admissions officer. Man, I, you know, I don't know how much merit uh, Miss Merriman's thoughts have, but it's interesting. It's interesting over the years where I, for example, preaching a passage on the holiness and justice of God where certain folks in our body that maybe had a parent, especially a father, um, who was a real uh, demanding and harsh and uh, judgmental sort of father, where they just recoiled from that sermon, like, almost like it was unfathomable. I need the opposite, was almost the response. I need those sermons from that sort of, that person sort of expressed to me. I need those sermons that portray God as a loving, welcoming father to sort of offset what I had in my father. It's interesting how those things can shape us. But here's the cool thing. Whatever your father, your experience with your parents, and especially your father, whatever your history may be, we can go to God's word and be equipped with who our heavenly father really is. We may carry some baggage in here. We may carry some experiences, some lenses that uh, cause us to interpret the world in a certain way. But here's the cool thing. Each week as we go to God's word, we can be, uh, 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 something can be built into us, a robust, healthy view of who our God is and Father is. That's kind of exciting. That, that gives me hope. To, hey, let's, let's climb into this. And to dedicate even a Sunday on really what the main focus of this morning is, is who God isn't. Interesting. I, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon like that. I don't know that I've ever preached a sermon like that. But in maybe figuring out who God isn't this morning, we can learn better who our Father truly is. So we're in the book of Job. I'll just kind of give you a little bit of um, context here so you kind of know where we are. The first couple of chapters of Job, the first uh, uh, kind of tell his story. He's a righteous man. He's the finest son of the East. I mean, this guy is blameless. He's described as blameless. Uh, God describes him as a, a son um, a worshiper that loves him wholeheartedly, that is blameless and righteous, and yet God offers him up to Satan to be tested. He loses everything. He loses his family minus his wife. He loses his, his seven sons, three daughters. He loses his property, basically all of his livestock, uh, some raids by the Chaldeans and Sabaeans, um, rob him of his livestock, rob him of all of his servants. Uh, and then in chapter 2, he loses his health. He's covered with boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. This guy has really lost everything. And then adding insult to injury, chapter um, three is spent basically him lamenting the day of his birth. I wish I'd never been born. I wish that day was wiped from the calendar. And then adding insult to injury, the catastrophes didn't end at the end of chapter two. They continued and he actually picked up in chapter four where three supposed friends, and I use air quotes every time I use these friends, three supposed friends had some sage counsel for Job. And that, that's what takes up the majority of the rest of the whole book of Job. It's a whole section of what's called the dialogues, where these three friends are interacting with Job, and Job is responding to each of them. We spent a Sunday in the first set of dialogues, which goes chapters 4 through 14. We spent the last two Sundays in the second set of dialogues, which go chapter 15 through 21. And this Sunday, we're going to parachute in and look at one particular passage in the third round of dialogues. These friends that he supposes are supposed friends he's interacting with, dialoguing with, are named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You'll hear some of their names today, primarily Bildad. The first round of dialogues were relatively civil compared to the second. 
The second round of dialogues got pretty heated, and by the time the third round comes around, Eliphaz is the only one of the three that gets airtime, really, significant airtime. He gets the typical space that he's gotten in those other groups of dialogues. Bildad only gets a few moments. He gets six verses. That's it compared to how, how much airtime he got in the other dialogues. And then Zophar doesn't even get to speak. It's almost like Job says, okay, I've had enough of the bunch of you. And it's like he cuts Bildad off midstream and doesn't even give Zophar a chance to speak. But this morning, we're going to spend most of our time considering Bildad's last speech in chapter 25. Okay, so hopefully you're there in chapter 25. It's a very short chapter. If you'd like to kind of make some notes about where else we're going to go, maybe sometimes it's helpful to have a bookmark or something like that in these other pages. We'll be turning to the end of the book of Job at some point in the morning. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 1 later on in the morning. And we'll be ending our morning in Job chapter 23. Okay? All right, so what we're going to do first is we're going to unpack Bildad's speech, this last uh, little uh, dialogue from Bildad, six verses. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. What I'd like to do in these next few minutes is just sort of unpack the luggage from Bildad's speech. You might know from the title already that the title of the sermon, the focus on the sermon is who God isn't. So I want you to be paying attention as we unpack these words from Bildad so that we can make sense of what he's saying about our God. First of all, in verse 2, he says, Dominion and fear are with God. Okay, dominion, uh, specifically, first of all, uh, Psalm chapter 22 tells us that dominion and actually kingship belongs to the Lord and that he rules over the nations. Okay, I hope that we would agree with Bildad and what he said there, that dominion belongs to the Lord, that God is truly great, that he is truly omnipotent, and that he rules over all creation. We can agree with Bildad so far in regards to dominion. Now, fear, it's unclear what he's really saying here about fear. He says dominion and fear are with God. Uh, first is, is an attribute of God that he, he, he has dominion. The second one, fear, is not an attribute of God. He must be speaking of what we have toward God. It's kind of hard to make sense of exactly what Bildad's getting at here. But if we believe that he's speaking about the fear of the Lord, then we might agree with him that Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You're just getting somewhere when it comes to wisdom and knowledge when you begin to fear the Lord. Okay, if he's getting at that sort of fear of the Lord being a good thing, something, that's, something that we should desire and cherish and want, then we could agree with Bildad on the first part of verse 2. The second part of verse 2, he says, he makes peace in his high heaven. Uh, it, it's interesting. I, I would assume that it's going to be peaceful in heaven, but just, uh, just consider this passage from Psalm 147. It says, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Okay, we're not talking about the high heaven. We're talking about Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. Okay? If God can bring peace to Jerusalem, and if you know the history of Jerusalem, to know that God can, on his own terms, in his own time, bring peace to Jerusalem, one of the most war-torn cities in the history of the world, that he could certainly have peace in the high court of heaven, that he owns peace, and that he can make it wherever he wants. It's safe to assume that heaven would be home base for his peace. So, so far we're agreeing with Bildad. I am. I mean, I, I respect that most of you are too, that he, he owns dominion. He rules the nations. That fear is a good thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That he makes peace in his high heaven. And the third thing uh, from verse 3 says, is there any number to his armies? Okay, if you've read much of the Bible, you know that God has uh, a host of heaven. 
Okay, Jeremiah chapter 33 says, The host of heaven can't be numbered. There are so many, the myriad, myriad number of countless numbers of troops at his disposal. So, so far, we're agreeing with Bildad on pretty much everything, this supposed friend. And then next he says in in verse 3, he says, Upon whom does his light not arise? On whom does his light not arise? At this point, really, let me just kind of give you a sense of what we're doing. We're trying to figure out, do we agree with this guy or not? Okay, we're unpacking what he said about God to go, okay, so far, it's not really landing on something that we disagree with. So pay attention. Let's continue on. He says, upon whom does his light not arise? Later in the book of Job, there's a young man that sort of weighs in on the whole conversation. He's after the dialogues because it's not a dialogue at all. It's a monologue from a young man named Elihu. And Elihu says this about God. He says, out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. We could agree with Elihu about that as well. Man, Paul told Timothy, he said that God dwells in unapproachable Light. We can imagine the splendor and the glory of our God, that his light arises on everyone. And then in verse 4, let's just continue to unpack here and see what, see what this guy is saying. We can continue to agree with Bildad. Let's see what happens in verse 4. How then can man be right before God? And how can he who is born of woman be pure? Hey, I hope our church is continuing to agree with this guy. What he said right here in the first part of this verse is, how can man be right before God? I hope that most of us, at least many of us, maybe even all of us could agree that, ah, yeah, he's holy and we're not. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Yes, wholeheartedly we would agree with him. And then he says, how can he who is born of woman be pure? I suspect that a large part of our church would agree with that as well. Man, our our own constitution that captures what we believe. We have a whole section on our website that says, this is what we believe. We We don't believe that man is naturally good. We believe that we are sinful by nature. We would agree with what I believe our Bible is clearly saying about our nature, that we have participated in this thing called original sin. And it's interesting what R.C. Sproul said. He said, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. And so far what Bildad is saying, he says, how then can man be right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? We would agree with David from Psalm 51 where he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So far, we're firing on all cylinders with Bildad. Man, I'm... I'm agreeing with you, buddy. Huh. Okay, let's see what he says next in verse 5. Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. Huh. Okay, now I'm, I'm scratching my head over that one a little bit. Okay, nothing that he said so far is suspect. Okay, I, I, I imagine that if Job is listening at this point, if we had a little snapshot, a little video of Job as Bildad is speaking to him, that Job, although he's frustrated with his supposed friends by this point, that Job is nodding his head. He's covered in boils, sitting there, but he's nodding his head at everything that Bildad has said so far up to this point. But then Bildad goes freestyle and starts talking about the moon. And start talking about the stars. He says, behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. And according to Bildad, though God made the moon and stars, the moon isn't as bright as it should be. And the stars are corrupt and broken in God's eyes, just like good old broken man. Hmm. Let's see what he says in verse 6. I'm... A little suspicious of verse 5. Let's see what he says in verse 6. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Now, I'm I'm recoiling at this kind of language a little bit, but right off the bat, something that I'm really struggling with that I hope you're struggling with as well is there's an implied value with the moon and stars statement before it that man is less valued than the moon and stars. Is anybody else struggling with that notion? Anybody else have a little bit of pause right there? Man, in fact, according to Bildad, is a maggot and a worm. 
Okay, that's not the kind of language that we use a lot around here. It's not the kind of language we use with our kids. It's not the kind of language if your kids are over there in Bible study, we're not teaching them they're little maggots and little worms. Because little maggots and little worms are kind of gross, and they're kind of lowly, and they're kind of unimportant, and they're kind of unvalued. And they're kind of the same thing, maggots and worms, but maggots are larvae of flies, all right? They have no value really at all in our economy, okay? In the human economy, we're looking at maggots going, okay, you have no value. Looking at a worm, you have no value. Both are lowly and of no value. But maybe Bildad is getting at something, because there's actually a couple of passages in other places that refer to a man or a people as a worm. If you know your Bible well, maybe you've gone, hey, wait a minute, maybe I could agree with Bildad. Psalm 22, verse 6, a prophetic passage, or a psalm of David, prophetic about our Savior, says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Huh. We'll deal with that at the end of the morning. This other passage in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 14 God is speaking to Israel, and he says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, O men of Israel. God speaks to Israel and refers to them as a worm. So maybe Bildad is on to something with the whole worm and maggot thing. You know, Bildad's got some friends. He's got Zophar. Okay, we're not going to hear from Zophar really at all today. But he's got another friend, Eliphaz. If you're paying attention to the storyline there. A few weeks ago, you may remember that Eliphaz had a little vision. Okay, if you have your Bible there, you're in Job. I may not have given you a heads up about this passage, but you can turn over to Job chapter 4. I want you to see this. This is worth seeing. We're spending a morning considering who God is not. It's very important that we see specifically what's being said here by these supposed friends of Job. Okay, this is when the first dialogue kicks off. It's sort of civil at this point. Eliphaz has some words to share with Job. They're really kind of sweet at first. If I can venture a word with you. You know, you've been a great help to others. Let me see if I can give you a good word of encouragement here. And then Eliphaz begins to share the account of a visit from a creepy spirit that that gave him some information. It's really a bizarre. It's like a little ghost story within the book of Job. Like in my Bible, I actually wrote, I wouldn't know how to spell it, but I know what it looks like. I know what, you know. Here's how it goes down in verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. Okay, this is Eliphaz speaking to Job. A word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. That's where I wrote, ooh, Man, that's scary. Really? I mean, for real. It stood still, this spirit, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. And then I heard a voice from the creepy spirit. And this voice said, Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants... He, being God, puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. Huh. It sounds a lot like this message from Bildad over there. How can man be right before God? How could man be pure before God? God even finds uh, charges of error with his own angels. He can't even trust his own servants. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Wow, okay. So Job is getting this impression from his friends about God, from Bildad so far, this impression about God is pretty rough. That Job basically says, okay, according to this guy, I'm a worm and a maggot. I can add in there from Eliphaz and from his creepy spirit that can mortal man be right before God? Can man be pure before his maker? God puts no trust in his servants. Okay, so the seraphim who are flitting about the throne all day long, who are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He can't really trust them. They're suspicious. All that singing, they're probably really up to something sinister. And then those elders who are casting their crowns all day long, ah, mm, they probably really want something selfish. It's not probably, 
It couldn't really be worship. God puts no trust in his servants, and he charges his own angels with error. How much more those who are made from clay? Wow, so this is the God that's presented by Bildad and Eliphaz. I was thinking about if there was FBC Edom. You know, FBC is First Baptist Church, if you kind of know the lingo. FBC Greenville, there's FBC everywhere. There's FBC Edom. Okay, an ancient version of FBC sitting over there in Edom. And let's say that Bildad and Elihu are the pastors. And that's the, they, they preach each week. And you're going to get your impression about God from these guys. You're going to have a pretty rough impression about God from these guys. You're going to really have the sense that God's just sort of a big grump. Right? He's not happy with his creation. Certainly not happy with his creatures. Is that true? I mean, does anybody have that impression about that? About maybe from their living father, that that's the kind of heavenly father that you have? Consider at the end of the book of Job, it's interesting that Job actually gives an, a, a, makes a sacrifice on behalf of his friends because God is angry with his friends. Because here's what he says about his friends in, the ch- in chapter 42. He says, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Man, does anybody see how, how strange this is? Most of what we heard from Bildad so far, and some of what we heard from Job, we would say we agree with. So what do we do with this? God is angry with these three friends that they have not spoken what is true about him. And it seems we get the sense that Bildad's God, Eliphaz's God, is like a cranky building inspector. If you've ever built anything in Greenville... Not picking on Greenville, it's probably true anywhere. You know that part of the process is somebody from the city shows up with a clipboard. You got a really sharp pencil. It happened a lot here when we were building this facility, and people show up and say, Oh, this isn't right. This electrical system here is these joists are out of place, or you know, it's almost like you're working on commission. Like, hey man, are you are you getting paid extra if you find a certain number of infractions? That's sort of the sense that you get, but you get this sense potentially from Bildad and Eliphaz that that's the kind of God that we have that's just sitting around with this clipboard waiting for an infraction so that he can jot it down. (laughs) There you go. Anybody have that impression of God? A cranky building inspector. He's just finding infractions. Moon, you're not bright enough. Stars, you're corrupt. Angels, I find fault with you. It reminds me of the grouchy ladybug. I used to read the kids, the grouchy ladybug, Eric Carle when we were growing up, where the grouchy ladybug is just a grump about everything. You're not big enough. I can't fight you. Get the sense that God's just like this grouchy, cranky building inspector that's just looking for infractions. He relates formally and legally to humans. It's not a family, and he's not a father at all. It's rather a bureaucracy with paperwork and with checklists and with bylaws. It's like he's saying, I have dominion, I have armies innumerable, and you, you're not right, you're impure, I don't trust you, you're a worm, you're a maggot and a moth. Is that the impression that you have of our father? Potentially. Bildad's God does not relate to his people. Bildad's God has no sons, first of all. And if he did have sons, Job certainly would not be one of them. Bildad's view on man, too, is interesting. Bildad's go-to view on man is men are not righteous, men are not loyal. And here's the implication. This is frightening. I think we have a room full of folks here that believe in the depravity of man, who could agree wholeheartedly, who have Romans 3.23 memorized. Yes, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Who have Psalm 51, at least that section of it memorized, realizing and knowing full well we were conceived in iniquity, born in sin. We can make a beeline to those things and we can run to our depravity and we can put our arms around and say, yes, we are depraved. God is holy and we are not. But here's what's frightening. If you hold too tightly to that, if that's what you view mankind as, period, then you can land with Bildad and Eliphaz who are saying, okay, man's not righteous, man's not loyal, and if you press them hard enough, they're going to curse you to your face. 
Who's that sound like? They can't be trusted. So you press them hard enough, and they'll curse you to your face. You remember in the story of Job who said that? It was Satan that said that. This creepy spirit that came to Eliphaz seems to have been a spirit that came straight from Satan. And the message that comes from Eliphaz and Bildad seems to have come straight from Satan. Men are not righteous. Men are not loyal. If you press them hard enough, they'll curse you to your face. Man, Bildad's God is just putting up with a whole lot of us, right? He takes no pleasure in us. He puts no trust in us. We're just maggots. We're just worms. We're just moths. Really just a bunch of crushables with no value. Man, I just can't imagine that uh, they would have parking and seating issues at FBC Edom. You know, I'm not encouraging the notion of a popular message or a message that makes you feel good. But I'm just thinking about the notion of a church that's presenting our people or some messenger that's presenting this view of God is saying, who wants that God? Who wants that Father? No, thank you. Man, here's just an encouragement. Maybe this is, I've, I've thought about this over the years and I've said it probably a hundred times, maybe more. While one verse is completely true, while we could look at the things that Bildad said and we could go to satellite passages and say, yeah, that's true, about 90% about what he said, maybe 80%. We could find passages, supporting passages that agree with him. While one verse is completely true, it doesn't reveal the truth completely. And that's why we gather Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to add in these new realities, these new truths where we have a more robust picture of our God. These snapshots of God painted by Bildad and Eliphaz are just plain suspect. So I'd like to sort of regroup here. I'd like to gather in a better view, one that we can walk away with of the kind of God that we have and considering the kind of view that he has on creation. So turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'm going to share a passage with you from Psalm 136. I just briefly want to make this comment in regards to the moon and stars. It was in Bildad's speech where he started talking the moon and stars. They're like, the moon's not bright enough and stars are, are suspect. You know, they're um, corrupt in some way. Where you get this sense of hey, something's not quite right with Bildad's message. Now, here's what Psalm 136 says. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. I want you over there in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at that in a moment. This is just a brief comment about the moon and stars. Okay, You're not moon and stars, but I, I want to vindicate the moon and stars here for a moment. And I want to vindicate their creator and his view on them. Okay, So just here's a thought. God, it says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Here's what the rest of God's word seems to paint picture of the moon and stars, that the moon is exactly how bright it should be because that's how God made it. And the stars are provided by and sustained by his steadfast love. Okay, Bill Dad. Right off the bat, it seems that God takes pleasure in his creation, at least moon and stars and some of those things that we've named so far. In fact, they are sustained by and provided by his steadfast love. So he doesn't so far sound like this grumpy building inspector that you presented. Let's talk about man. Maybe that's where you want to go. I want to go there. I want to make a beeline to making sense of Bill Dad's presentation of God's view on man. So just consider this passage in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them and God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, on this last day, the only day that he proclaims, he says, it's very good on this day that I made man. It's very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. I, if I had the chance to visit FBC Edom, and if I had the chance to stand in that pulpit, I would want to proclaim and declare the realization, the reality that God didn't make man on the first day of the week. He didn't make him midweek. He made him on the last day of the week, the crowning day. It's his crowning creation, his crowning achievement. He made him after he made that sun and moon and stars that Bildad seemed to want to so quickly place below the moon and stars. And he called this day very good. And didn't he make him in his own image? He made him in his own image. And it was to mankind that God gave the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. And he gave those instructions, dominion after the fall as well. After the flood, he shared it again. I'm giving you dominion over this thing that I've created. Man, that doesn't sound like Bildad's God. It sounds like a good God. It sounds like a God that says, I value mankind. I value humankind. I've made you in my image. Psalm 8, I think, has some additional insight here. You can just listen to this psalm. It rounds out our better, I think, a better view of God's view on man. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory over the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Bildad says, when I look at that moon and those stars and those heavens, I say, man's a worm, man's a maggot, and man doesn't matter. He's a crushable, insignificant, unimportant. What is man, though? This psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that he's not a worm, but says you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him. Worms, maggots, and moths. This good father, not a grumpy building inspector, not the grouchy ladybug. This good father has crowned mankind with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. People of God, humans are not worms. Humans are not maggots or moths. Human beings have dignity because we were made in the image of God. Adam, the value of Adam, I've read somewhere that I think the value of a carbon in a human being is in the cents range, like 37 cents or something like that. Don't quote me on that, but I remember reading at some point that the value, if we were reduced to our carbon, had no value at all. You think about Adam, his name actually means earth. You know, think about Clay Petzold and Adam Bean. Your names actually mean earth, which is interesting because it, in and of itself, there's no real value. But what the value, where the value came from is that God shaped that earth. That gave that 37 cents worth of carbon some value. And then God breathed into that earth and gave it life. Man, that changes things. God spoke everything else into existence, but yet he touched man. He shaped man and he breathed into man. Man, Bildad is correct in some principles, but he's wrong in application. This guy has illustrated the fact that you can grab a few trees and you can identify a few trees, but you can miss the forest altogether. He's missed the forest of who God is. I want to encourage you with one little brief snapshot 
of who God really is from Job. It's just one snapshot. I think it's going to come into more focus in these next two weeks. We have at least two to three more weeks in the book of Job. The last two sermons, which are either the next two or the last two, if we have three, you're going to really see some shape and detail to who God is relative Job. You're really going to see what kind of father that we have in Job's God. Not Bildad's God, not Eliphaz's God, but in Job's God. But I want to just share with you, just if I can, briefly, this beautiful picture. Just a wee snapshot from Job chapter 23. Turn there. I want to hear some pages. I want you all to see this. This passage is going to become a treasure, literally, metaphorically and literally. Ironically, all those things all at the same time. Job chapter 23. Okay, the sermon's almost over, but don't tune out. This is really sweet. We've considered who God isn't. He's not a grumpy building inspector. He's not a cosmic killjoy that just wants to crush you. Okay? He's not just looking for infractions. Let me jot them down. Okay. Job chapter 23, beginning in verse 8. Job says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he's working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. Okay, let me see if I can just kind of summarize that passage so far. This passage is such a treasure. He's saying, All right, I go forward, I don't find God. I'm in this mess. I've lost everything that's valuable to me, that's important to me. I've lost everything. I'm covered with boils. I don't know why. This is not due to any sort of sin in my life. This is not the result of some consequence of sin in my life. I know that. I can't figure out what has happened to me. And I can't even figure figure out where God has gone. I go forward and he's not there. I go backward and he's not there either. And I go to the left, he's not there. I go to the right. I go everywhere I know to go, every cardinal direction, and I cannot find him, but I know this, that he knows the way that I take. He knows where I am. I don't know where he is, but he knows where I am. And this is the kind of father that we have. Look at this. This beautiful next passage that I just love so dearly. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Not a maggot. Not a moth, not a worm, but my God through this, my God who I can't find in this season for whatever reason, is making me gold. Man, that's beautiful. That'll travel into your circumstances. That'll travel into your trials to realize that we have that kind of God. We don't have this kind of God that's just looking for things and reason to crush you. But we have a God over here who actually is a good father that's actually making you through those trials and through those struggles. And maybe even through those seasons where you can't find him, gold. Man, I love that. I needed to see that. He's not a grumpy grumpy building inspector. It turns out he's actually a jeweler, like a wise, careful, discerning jeweler that also mines the raw materials and heats them up and removes the impurities and the dross and is shaping us into trophies of God's grace. That's the kind of father that we have. That's the kind of God that we have. Man, we are valued because of his touch and his breath and his craftsmanship because he's our father. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for this view into your nature. God, I'm thankful that in our trials and our struggles, whether they are deserved or not, that you are the kind of God that uses those seasons to make us gold. I'm thankful you're not the kind of God that's just looking to crush us. You're not the kind of God that reminds us of our valuelessness. You're not the kind of God that is just looking for infractions with a sharp pencil on a clipboard, but you're a good father who is making us gold. Ah, we love that. I love that, Lord. We love you. We are so thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I told you that I was going to come back to this passage, this 
There's really only two references in our Bible where any human being is referred to as a worm. The passage in um, Isaiah 41, the next passage is that God says, but I love you and I'm going to redeem you. Yes, Israel, you're a worm, but I love you and I'm going to redeem you. So it's not a valuelessness. It's not a, you're a crushable, insignificant, unimportant thing. It's um, something very different altogether. And the other reference was in Psalm 22. I'll, so, I'll share that passage with you if I can find it in my notes, or I'll just turn there in the Bible even better. You can turn there if you like, Psalm 22. Very familiar passage, prophetic passage about our Lord and his suffering, a passage written by David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And listen to what he says. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I think the reason that Christ... Our Savior is prophetically displayed as a worm is so that we don't have to be worms. He became a worm. He became a maggot in some ways. He became a moth and was crushed on our behalf so that we could be his children instead of being worms and maggots. That changes everything. And we enjoy that every single week as we enjoy his work on a cross, finished and perfect. If you are trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, if he is for you um, your Savior, if you, he is for you your hope, if he is for you who you've placed your trust in, I invite you to take and eat this supper with us. We're going to distribute a little piece of bread and a little cup of grape juice. And if you're trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, I encourage you to take and eat and drink. If you're not, this isn't for you. It's a meal with our God enjoying Christ's finished work. Let's distribute the elements. Song, man, thank y'all. Very, very fitting, very appropriate. Uh, we do have an amazingly good father. He gave us our very best in the person and work of his son. That's what we enjoy every single week. Anybody that has this sort of distorted view of Eliphaz or Bildad of God as being this sort of... Uh, crushing being that's just waiting to mash you doesn't know our God what a great what a great uh, opportunity we have in our community to share with folks this is the kind of God that we have a God that you can run to your view on God will shape how you handle sin it will shape how you'll 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 handle suffering I mean will you run to him or run from him if you know our God you run to him and we run to him every single week, enjoying the person, the person and work of his son. Let's take and eat in faith. Let's take and drink in faith. Let's continue in song.